Runoff, a crime novel about election fraud, evokes a curious timelessness of classic detective fiction. A noir gem, says Mystery Scene Magazine. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 23, All the Grass by Its Roots Whether I managed to blackmail the Wilmots into checking out wood or not, I realized that by merely possessing an audit trail from a Chinatown voting machine, I had met the terms of my employment. At a minimum, it was proof of problems in Election Day procedures, and the Dragon Lady could use it to force an official investigation. No doubt she would want me to keep going to help figure out more of the whys and wherefores, but it was time to update her so she could give me my well-deserved pat on the back. And it wouldn't hurt to do it in person in case Lisa just happened to be with her at her office in the Lee Family Association building. They had replaced the glass in the front window of the art gallery, but the same maestro was in the alcove playing his two-string violin. I gave him another buck and went further back to call for the penthouse elevator. The only problem was that the red phone was dangling by its cord, broken in two pieces like a cracked lobster claw. The elevator itself was partially open, its door sliding back and forth over and over again as it ran over something that protruded from the lower track. The something was the handle of a heavy cleaver that glimmered malevolently as I yanked it out. Chinese characters were splashed in red on either side of the blade, and while I didn't know the exact translation, I was certain it wasn't a wish for long life and good fortune. I held up the cleaver to shout at the violin player, What do you know about this? He twisted on his stool, caught sight of the cleaver, and then jerked around like he had seen the horsemen of the apocalypse on jet skis. He snatched up the stool and tip jar, and trotted away without a word or another glance behind him. I slipped through the gap of the closing elevator door and punched the button for the penthouse floor. I didn't know what I was going to find at the top, but I did know that all I had to deal with it was the cleaver and the knife on my ankle. As it turned out, the only thing required was a broom. The office was a shambles. Lisa's desk in the reception area was overturned, the stereo and office equipment on top now strewn across the floor. The pagoda pattern rug had pieces hacked out throughout its length, like the perforations in a player piano roll. And the three-foot cobalt vases that flanked the door of the Dragon Lady's office were now just three-inch piles of cobalt shards. The heavier rosewood desk inside the office had withstood all attempts at overturning, but its accoutrements, too, had been swept clear and cruel divots had been taken from the polished surface and, just for good measure, a second cleaver embedded in the center. The delicate rosewood chair and table set had been smashed into kindling, and a ceiling-high bookshelf behind the desk had been toppled. I searched the rooms, closets, and other less likely places to hide, but didn't find any sign of Lisa or the Dragon Lady. 
nor was there any blood or indication of a struggle. I used the call log on my cell phone to dial the number the Dragon Lady had reached me from before, but that just rang a phone I found buried under a pile of books in her office. I knew the number Lisa had given me on the first day was also an office line, so there seemed nothing for it but a trip to their house on Russian Hill. On my ride over, I called my buddy with the telephone directory to finagle the number of the phone that went with the Greenwich address. All that bought me was a message in Chinese from the answering machine. I pulled the galaxy to a stop in front of the single wide garage door with a warning in three languages about towing and hustled up to the metal gate that led into the villa. It was hanging wide open. I poked my head through and immediately spotted a third cleaver sticking out of the front door, but that was locked tight with three deadbolts, and cleaver or no cleaver didn't look like it had been breached. I rang the doorbell, but got no answer. I walked the full perimeter of the house and didn't find any further indications of tampering or attempts at forced entry. What I did find were bars across all the ground floor windows, alarm sensors, and signs for 24 by 7 monitoring by a home security company. While the cleaver in the door said they had been there, I had to conclude the bad guys either couldn't get in or realized that the dragon lady wasn't home. If they had come here first, it was still possible they had found Lisa and the dragon lady at the office and snatched them up. But if they failed to find them at the office on the first try, it looked like Lisa and her mother had anticipated the threat and skedaddled. The next question was who they were running from. I had a pretty good idea, but I figured if anyone could tell me for sure, it would be Alan Chow. I had almost as much trouble as the fire department wedging my vehicle down the narrow section of Waverly Place where he had his office. When I saw him come hurrying out of his building, I stopped trying entirely, shoved the gear shift into park, and spilled out of the car with the cleaver I'd taken from the Dragon Ladies. Chow was headed away from me, but I caught up with him as he paused to light a cigar by the door of a market with smoked ducks and chickens hanging in the window. He looked up at the sound of me pounding down the alley, shook out the match in his hand, and puffed a fog of gray-green smoke into the surrounding atmosphere. Raritan, he said with the cigar between his teeth. Come to help me check samples? You're more right than you know, I said. How would you rate this one? I presented the cleaver, handle first. He pushed his eyebrows up in surprise, making no move to take the big knife. That's a number one blade cleaver. Cheap. Carbon steel. Costs maybe three bucks wholesale, and we sell it for seven ninety five in the shop. Tourists buy them by the truckload, but most are too scared to actually use it when they get it home to their kitchen. Takes a certain finesse to wield one. He gestured at the birds in the window. Although they're great for chopping Peking duck. I was more interested in the uh, customizations. He sighed, jockeyed the cigar around in his mouth, and reached over to grasp the handle. He turned it to sight down the blade. Someone's put a pretty wicked edge on this, with a real grinding stone. It won't hold, though. Steel's too cheap. Come on, you know I was talking about the characters. Oh, those... Zhao Jing Sha Ju. 
a literal translation would be chop all with a knife. But what it really means is death to you and your family. A warning for the ducks? Hardly. It's a famous quotation from a Chinese emperor after a failed coup. He also said, Jian chao ju jin. Pull all the grass by its roots. It's the oath he swore on the chief conspirator. Did he carry it out? Chow returned the knife. He took a long drag on his cigar and then pulled it from his mouth to examine the tip. Sure, killed over a dozen people, including the man's children and his parents. And what's the oath doing on a 795 duck cleaver in the 21st century? It's a sort of calling card. Chinese gangs sometimes leave them behind as a threat, often to extort money from business owners. Finding one of these in your door can make you see things a little differently about paying protection. And which gangs would do this? As I told you before, there is only one. Wohop Toe. Yes, you told me. Wu's cook had a cleaver like that. Chow grinned and flicked cigar ash into the street. It would be the rare Chinese cook who does not. So you've been chatting with Tony Squidboy Wu. Yes, but he was smarter than me. I only learned what he wanted me to. I found two cleavers like this at Lenora Lee's office and another stuck in the door to her house. I was told that Wu and Mrs. Lee had been wrangling over a business deal, but that Lee had met Wu's terms. Do you know if they've fallen out again? A truck from the fortune cookie factory on Ross came up from behind Chow. We squeezed into the doorway to let it by. When we stepped back, Chow shook his head. The cleaver says they're Splitsville. No one else would leave it behind. But don't ask me what the issue between them is, because I don't know. A horn sounded behind me. I turned to find the cookie truck blocked by the abandoned galaxy. I took a tentative step back, but couldn't resist asking one more question. These cleavers... They put me in mind of hatchet men from 1920 Tongs. But it's all symbolic, right? They don't actually use them, do they? The horn sounded again, longer and more insistent. Chow shook his head and clamped the cigar back in his teeth. You're forgetting that Wohop To is a Hong Kong gang. There are very few guns in Hong Kong. Yes, they use them, often one in each hand. I've seen photos of men killed that way. They look like they've been through a wheat thrasher. I ran into more parking problems on the way back to my office. There weren't any spots, legal or illegal, on my side of Market Street, so I had to settle for an illegal one in the alley behind the San Francisco Shopping Center. I forded Market Street at the intersection with Fifth and went past all the old men playing chess on folding tables near the cable car turnaround. I paused to indulge my superstitious ritual of tapping the Samuels jeweler street clock and finally slipped into the lobby of the flood building while a young mother herding six-year-old twin boys held the door open, yelling at the kids to stop trying to pry gum off the sidewalk with a pocket comb. JB, the security guard behind the reception desk, nodded at the Popeye's chicken bag I carried in both hands. It's a little late for lunch, isn't it, August? But you should have got the bucket. It's a better deal. Just a little afternoon snack, I said, 
and winked at him. I'll remember the bucket the next time. The bag had come wadded up from the floor of the galaxy and actually contained the Wohop toe cleaver. I didn't think it would be good form to carry the knife uncovered through the streets of downtown. I continued over to the elevators and caught a ride on an ascending car to the 12th floor. I walked past the entrance to our suite and pulled out the key for the private door to my office. Taking my hand away from the Popeye's bag to fish out the key was a small act that turned out to have big consequences. The paper at the bottom split and the cleaver fell to the floor. I jumped back to avoid self-mutilation and dropped to one knee to retrieve the knife. Just as I got hold of it, the lock snicked back and the door pulled open. A set of fingers wrapped around the edge. Then the long barrel of a silenced handgun poked out, followed by the tousled bangs and forehead of the little man who'd gotten the better of me in the knife fight outside Shanghai 1930. Gretchen's voice came from the outer office, high-pitched and bordering on hysteria. We told you he's not here! There was a muffled grunt and then the blowgun noise of a silenced pistol. Gretchen screamed and the little man moved to go back inside. I didn't let him. I rammed the bottom of the door with my shoulder and brought the cleaver down on his black slippered foot like I was tenderizing pork chops. He shrieked and reached for his wounded toes. I launched upward, bringing a hard flat palm into his jaw as I came. I took him by the hair and beat his skull into the doorframe. His eyes rolled back in his head, and I wrenched the gun from his rubbery fingers as he puddled to the floor. The gun was some species of twenty-two automatic I'd never seen before. I made sure the safety was off and ducked into my office. As soon as I crossed the threshold, there was another shot, and I saw Gretchen grab her torso and pitch forward onto her desk, gazing at her assailant in the other room with a kind of languid curiosity as she fell. Boniker told me later that was when I began with the howling, but I don't remember now. What I do remember is striding across my office with a gun extended at arm's length. I started firing before I even rounded the corner, sending two slugs kissing into the far wall. I was only vaguely aware of Boniker slumped on the floor by Gretchen's desk, as I entered the reception area. What I couldn't fail to see was the cook from Wu's dim sum place with a matching automatic in his hand. I don't know what he thought was coming at him, but he managed to raise his gun and squeeze a shot in my direction. I felt something go zinging by my ear, but it couldn't have mattered less. What mattered was moving forward with a front sight bisecting his face while I worked the trigger. The first shot obliterated his left eye. The second bit an angry red hole in his forehead as he toppled forward. I missed with the third, but advanced to stand over his twitching body as I pumped rounds four, five, and six into his chest and throat. The trigger stopped working, and a gigantic sob escaped from me like a trapped air bubble. I threw the gun down and stumbled over to where Gretchen lay smeared across her desk. I lifted her carefully to find the lower half of her black turtleneck soaked in blood a hole just below her right breast welling more. I yanked off my jacket, wadded it up, and pressed it hard into the wound. I was blubbering over her when I felt movement beside me. Boniker levered himself off the ground, one bloody hand held to the center of his gut. Call the ambulance. I'll do that. 
I stared as he struggled to his feet and then finally thought to ask if he was okay. He held up his left hand. The tip of his little finger was gone. He yanked out his handkerchief and wrapped it around the damaged appendage. He replaced my hands on the makeshift compress and elbowed me out of the way. I can handle this. Just make the call. Gretchen's phone had been knocked to the floor and I couldn't get a dial tone. I cursed and dodged around the dead cook to Boniker's desk, where I managed to raise the 911 operator. She told me they would be there soon. I nodded, let the handset slide from my shoulder. I was on my way back to Gretchen, one foot on either side of the dead cook, when the sound of the Jeopardy theme song emanated from his belt line. I reached down to rifle his pockets, a reignited fury making my movements clumsy, and extracted a flashing cell phone. I pressed talk and grunted into the receiver. A voice I recognized as Wu's replied in Chinese. Squid boy! I said in a hoarse voice that cracked with rage. Who is this? It's death. Death to you and your family. There was a soft click, and the line went quiet. You have been listening to Runoff, a book hard-boiled great James Crumley described as a smart, funny, spooky, often touching, always entertaining romp. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. 